Blog Talk Radio. Hello, everybody. We're having, again, some more freaking technical issues, which I'm trying to get fixed here real quick. But I will... everybody now that i got the technical shit out of the way thank you so much for joining us here on suspense radio uh i am your host john rob and of course we want to thank you all for listening however wherever whenever you listen to the show we're always pleased to have you join us um today we have three outstanding authors coming up for you first we're going to have doug burgess then we're going to have gray bass Knight, and we're going to end it with uh linda laplante all the way she's going to be talking to us from england actually she's from england but i think she's in the states to be able to talk to us um so that's going to be exciting. I want to remind you that all the shows here are brought to you by Kensington Books. So please make sure you visit kensingtonbooks.com for more information on their books and everything that they have going on. You can also visit suspensemagazine.com, the latest issue of the magazine, up to see everything that we have going on inside. Lots of stories, lots of articles, lots of book recommendations and everything in there just like normal. So, without any further ado, I want to jump in here to our first guest. He is debut author, uh, fiction-wise, here with Poison Press, and we're very pleased to be able to have him on. We love to talk to debut authors, hear their journey, and hear um, their story about what they have coming up. The book is called Fogland Point. It will be out on August the 21st, so when you're listening to the show now, you can uh, pre-order it, or you can wait till Tuesday, get it on Amazon. So, Doug, we want to thank you so much for coming on. How are you doing? Great. Thank you for having me. Yes, we got through the technical issues. Um, kind of screwed up a little bit on the beginning, but that's okay. So, Fogland Point, a very exciting time. Your first debut fiction book. You've written many nonfiction books, seeing as how you are a professor of history. And now you're jumping into this world of, uh, you know, fictional thriller, I guess you want to say more thriller suspense kind of, kind of book. So mm-hmm. tell us a little about what you have going on. Well, this was actually, it's, it's my first uh, fiction novel, but it's been in the works all the way back since I was in undergrad. I wrote it up as a short story um, just for the heck of it and published it and it got a couple of awards and a bit of notice. And then it just sort of percolated for all of these years. So it was never entirely out of my, out of my consciousness, but now seeing it in print is absolutely amazing. And so give us the in and out of, you know, what you have going on inside of it. You know, uh, why I guess you, so it, it, took you kind of this long to kind of get it down was mm-hmm. it the characters that kind of got into you was it the plot that kind of got into you what was it about oh, um sure. you know fogland point well there's a couple of things the first thing is i grew up in a very small town in rhode island that's very much like uh, the one that's described in the novel and i grew up surrounded by all of these family stories 
And even as a little kid, we'd be sitting around the dinner table and they'd be talking about Uncle George that claimed to uh, ride with Teddy Roosevelt up San Juan Hill um, and Uncle Walter, who was drowned by his own crewmates on his fishing boat. And, you know, as a kid, I one time I asked, you know, where are these people? And of course, they were all dead. They died back in the 20s and 30s and teens. So uh, I'm one of those weird little New England kids that grew up surrounded by ghosts. And as I got older and some of the people of my grandparents' generation started to pass away, I had become the custodian of their stories. I was the one that remembered all of the family stories back and back and back, many about people that I had never even met. So it was always in my mind, wouldn't it be great to write a kind of collective biography of all of these characters and all of these stories? And then as it worked through my imagination, I thought, well, that's not really I don't necessarily want to be hidebound to the actual stories themselves. I want to place those stories in the context of a little New England town. Uh, and I've always loved mystery. I grew up with mysteries. My first book I remember reading was Murder on the Orient Express. So oh, I love mystery, that. Oh, it's just phenomenal. Um, yeah. And uh, I think that the mystery became a vehicle to be able to retell some of these New England legends. Um, and in a very specific way, because I dealt with uh, a grandparent that had Alzheimer's, and as she began to lose her memories, other parts of her past started to emerge. So this is something that I think not many people know about dementia and Alzheimer's. It's not just about what you forget, it's what you remember. And she would float in and out of time. Uh, she would suddenly be a 12-year-old girl in her parents' house again. And all of a sudden, I was getting these incredible descriptions of this house that had been torn down back in the 1940s. And I wanted to put that in the novel as well, this idea of memory and how you try to hold on to memories even as they slip away. So in the novel, of course, uh, the narrator's grandmother begins to recount a murder that she saw and he has no idea whether it's a murder that happened yesterday or 50 years ago or never happened at all. Because that's the, the terrifying thing about dementia is that it warps your sense of reality. So everything that seems real to you could be in the present or the past or not at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we have something in common on that one because I've had um, three grandparents and my father right now has Alzheimer's. And it is a oh. a very horrible disease, and it's true. You can kind of ask them any day, like, so how old are you? And it's like, well, I'm 45. What are you talking about? You know, like, yeah. they, that's what they remember, like, that time frame. And so, yeah, so when you're dealing with something like that, a character in a book and, and trying to get that out, it's, I think it's kind of difficult. Uh, I think your challenge is, is to, like you said, to kind of make it feel real, like the character really does believe that that's, what what they are going on without making them, I guess, kind of sounding crazy. So was that a challenge for you to kind of grasp that realism and, and, and make that the way that – and kind of get that to the reader? It was a challenge, but it was actually one of the, the most – I hesitate to use the word fun, but it was one of the most uh, exhilarating gratifying of the novel. Gratifying, yeah, because, I mean, there's a very personal element to this for me as well. I've lost mm-hmm. a lot of family members to this disease, and it's always in the back of my mind since I was a kid that it yeah. could happen to me. It happened to my great-grandfather, my grandmother, my you know, 
current generation are kind of waiting to see what's going to happen to them. So when I talk about wanting to tell these stories, there's an urgency in me as a writer as well. I want to tell these stories before I can't tell them anymore and put them down in a form where I know that even if something happens to me, they'll be preserved. And that, you know, long before I ever had the idea for this novel, that urgency was there. And I wanted to convey that through these characters. There's the grandmother who is very anxious that this, reality that she's experiencing be communicated that she's able to get through to these other people that this really did happen um and then there's the narrator himself who's trying to interpret that reality and then as events around him begin to unfold he begins to see that there is something to what she's saying that there is a truth even if it's coming through a kind of a looking glass lens that there is a truth to what she's trying to tell him many authors have always said that characters start to speak to them, whether it was before the book was written, during the book, and then things start seem to taking a mind of their own. Did that happen for you? And if it was, like, which character per se was the biggest one who voiced their opinion of they wanted to do certain things within the book? Oh, well, the narrator, because uh, he started out very much as an avatar for myself. Um, he was a bit younger than me. I fudged a bit on that. Uh, but he had just come out of graduate school. <laughs> um, he's a university professor. He teaches history. And in the original iteration, he was, as I am, an openly gay man. And then as I started to create him, it wasn't that he got too personal. Um, it's that I, I realized this, this is a story that I don't really need to tell. But at the same time that I was working on him as a character, one of my closest friends in the world uh, began transitioning gender uh, from female to male. And I was with him for that transition, and it was such an incredible process that wow. I, as a kind of, yeah, as a spectator, as a bystander, I got to really understand this, uh, the issue of identity in a way that I'd never even imagined before. So that's what made me decide to make this, this narrator, this character, trans. And huh. that, if we're talking about the most difficult part of the novel, the most difficult part of the novel was conveying that truth about something that I have never experienced myself and will never experience, but to still make it real and honest. So uh, I did what any good researcher would do is that I read everything I could find uh, on, on not only the process, but narratives that people had left behind. And I talked to him, I bored him to death asking him questions uh, and all of the other, you know, all of his friends that I could talk to, to try and get a sense of what this journey is like. And of course it's never the same for any two people. Uh, but approaching that, that was the thing that I wanted to be sure that I got right was what it's like to, um, uh, experience life from two different genders. And in this novel, uh, David, the narrator, comes back to a town that when he had left previously, some years ago, he was still identifying as female, and he comes back as a male. And, of course, that creates a whole uh, slew of complications in terms of his personal relationships with, for example, his ex-boyfriend and family members and his you know, grandparents' friends and all of that. Mm -hmm. And being able to be true to that, being able to convey that and not make it, uh, you know, just a novel about a trans man, which is so much more than that. Um, but still be honest to that was the hardest thing I had to do. And, you know, when you name a book Fogland Point, that automatically puts me in the sense of, oh, 
this is going to be a character uh, in the sense of because that's, you know, the, the setting and the scene is definitely going to be a character in, in the book. Was that mm-hmm. something that you consciously were trying to, to, to also make, that, that, that the setting and the scene was going to be one of the main characters? Oh, heck yes. Because I'm from Rhode Island, and most people know Rhode Island as the place that they stopped to pee on the way from New York to Massachusetts. Right. I and just know Rhode Island as Providence. Yes. Really? Yeah, or Providence. <laughs> well, now or, I know Warwick, yeah. Rhode Island, because I watch it on Live PD, and I had no idea. You know, I, I watched that. Oh, so there you go. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, you guys got some Fogland crazy crime Point. up there in Warwick, Rhode Island, man. I'll tell you. <laughs> this is funny because I, I live in, in, in Brooklyn, and I live in a part of Brooklyn that is historically scary, but I have never felt in the least bit self-conscious about going out at 4 o'clock in the morning or coming back at 4 o'clock in the morning. Nothing's ever happened to me. But there is no way in the world that I would be in you know, East Providence or Central Falls past 1130 a.m. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's it can be it can be pretty tough up there, um, but no, you know, Fogland Point's a real place. Uh, Little Compton, the town that it's set in, is also real. Fogland Point is actually exactly where I describe it. It's it's a little kind of a peninsula that comes out of Little Compton, and I knew about it because many many years ago we used to live on a boat, and the fellow that owned the boat next to ours had a slight mental complication that meant that he could never exactly remember the names of the places he had been to. And he kept Mm -hmm. talking about dropping anchor in Frogland Point. And as a five-year-old kid, I thought, wow, Frogland Point, that's got to be the coolest place in the world, right? (laughs) And then I found out it was actually Fogland. Um, But I loved it because... because it's, it's, it never was a place more truly named. There's a kind of meteorological quirk that means that Little Compton gets way more fog and nasty weather than any other part of Rhode Island just because of where it's placed. So, uh, you know, the, the real truth of the town is, as I described it, that the town square really is a graveyard, uh, and it really does kind of jut out into the Atlantic Ocean. So it gets all of this kind of Grand Banks weather of continuous fog and rain and everything. So it's, it is the best possible setting for a novel, especially about one that deals with issues of imperfect memory and recollection, because that fog is everywhere. And I want to remind everybody that we're speaking here with author Doug Burgess, and the book is called Fogland Point, and it is out on August 21st. If you want to find out more information about it, the best place to go is to go to poisonedpenpress.com, and you'll find uh, you, you can search for Fogland Point there, and you'll be able to find more information on that. But of course, it's available on Amazon and uh, Kindle and hardcover and, um, and paperback actually too on uh, August 21st. So. How was your journey? I mean, it took you so long to finally get published. Did you think it was ever going to happen? I mean, how did you find <laughs> Poison Pen? I mean, did you do the agent route? Did you just kind of do it yourself? A lot of authors, you know, that are aspiring always like to know about the journey. Like, how did you do it? Like, how, how was your journey? Oh, it's, it's a long journey. Uh, I've had the same amazing agent, uh, Kimberly Cameron, for now going on almost 15 years, I think. And she has been absolutely wonderful at placing all of my nonfiction books. And we had talked about a novel. She had read a couple of the, the nonfiction pieces that I wrote. She said, you know, you, you should try writing fiction someday. And I thought, well, I've done it a couple of times, but never seriously. Uh, and actually, the first draft of a novel that I wrote for her 
was something that's coming out in February, also by Poison Print. It's called The Tribune. Uh, and it's quite different. It's more of a political thriller. And that one, the first draft of that, I wrote all the way back in, I think, 2005. So that had been kind of percolating along. And then I rewrote that old short story uh, that I had written in college. And that ended up getting published in Ellery Queen Mystery Magazine. I think it was called um, The Laughing Sarahs, I think. And that came out maybe about six years ago. And it was pretty well received, and it got some, some, some good comments. So uh, Kimberly called me up, and she said, you know, could you expand that into a mystery novel? Well, of course I could, yes. I mean, I, I've always wanted to write a mystery. Uh, I wrote my first mystery novel just for, the, for a high school senior project, and it was absolutely terrible. Um, but it was fun. So I took the short story as kind of the bare bones um, outline and I began to work on it and it became more and more involved. And then I started to actually uh, solicit more stories from my family to try and you know, incorporate them into the novel. And then I think the draft was done probably about maybe three years ago and Poison Pen picked, uh, Poison Pen picked it up and they were really enthusiastic about it and they've been fantastic at getting the word out about it uh it's got some surprisingly strong reviews coming back from publishers weekly and uh bookless kirkus and this this is amazing to me because as a first-time author i had uh, i had a great deal of confidence in my editor and my agent but considerably less in my own abilities so to see that kind of uh, validation come back was was truly amazing so it's, it's been a long journey but a very fun one yeah, and and now that you're into it, I mean, have you decided? Was there a reason why you decided standalone instead of maybe series to kind of start off? Because you know, there's a lot of people that you know like to kind of try to jump into that series route and um, mm-hmm. instead of the standalones. Because sometimes standalones can be a little bit more difficult uh, if that's a, you know kind of new career. I feel than kind of the series. Well, it's funny. It was conceived as a standalone, but uh, in conversations with Poison Prem, they said, could you make this a series? And I actually could. And in fact, I've already got the, the germination of the idea for the sequel novel. Uh, so it was, even though it was something that, that I wanted to write kind of on its own, uh, it's very easy for me to see how these, the characters' journeys could continue. I mean, there's a relationship that develops in this novel that's very much in its early stages as the novel ends, and I thought it would be really fun to see where that relationship could go in a sequel. Uh, so I think, uh, don't be surprised if you see uh, a follow-up to Fogland Point coming out in the next couple of years. Oh, and so, so you do kind of have that series mentality kind of in mind then. I do, and I, I can tell you one thing. Uh, I know there's a, there's a standing policy of never giving up, giving too much away about your sequels, but I can tell you one aspect that I would love to look at is um, you know, following up this issue of memory and commemoration. The, it's been in the press a lot recently about how uh, all this issue about Confederate memorials and what, do you, you know, what, what oh, meaning yeah. does a statue convey? And this is something that Rhode Island had to deal with a couple of times because we had statues of, for lack of a better expression, Indian killers, Um, people that were famous at the early part of the 19th century for having, during Puritan days, gone out and and slaughtered Native Americans. And these statues were still around when I was a kid. 
So uh, I thought it would be really fun to take that as kind of a starting point um, in the same way that, that Fogland Point begins with this issue of, of one semi-recollected memory, you know, begin with this idea of a statue and the controversy around that statue and use that as kind of a jumping off point. So that's where the idea is now. And I've, I've written up a bit of an outline and you know, kind of sketched out a few characters. So, so it's coming. <laughs> Well, you know, and I'm not shy about giving my opinion on, on statues. I mean, as far as like the Confederate statues and whatnot, uh, I think that it's, um, I think it's a, an, an idiotic statement for when people say you're removing a statue, you're, you're removing history. Well, that's that's the dumbest thing I ever heard. You're, you're not removing the history. You're removing the symbol that was I considered an evil symbol back in the 1860s um, mm-hmm. and before. I mean, why are we going to, uh, you know? I guess you want to say idolize somebody who was totally against what the United States, you know, is and pretty much, you know, is today. Um, you know, I don't see statues of Germany or, you know, England and France and stuff sitting up, you know, you know, people who, I mean, they were enemies of, of, of the union, I guess you want to say. So, but you know what, put them in museums. They can always be in mm-hmm. museums. They don't need to be out in state, you know, in governmental, you know, lands. It makes no sense to me. It just—it really makes no sense to me. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I. But you want to put them in a museum? Put them in a museum and let all the people who want to study that go and study that. Um, mm-hmm. That's what we have museums for. You know, we have Holocaust museums and we have all these museums around that people. You go study those things, and and they're in one specific place. Hell, if you want to have a Confederate mm-hmm. Hall of Fame, put that in a freaking building. I don't care. But I think that it's, I think that's the proper place that it should go. Um, it's not like we sit there and we say Jefferson Davis was, the, you know, a, a president of the United States. No, he's an enemy of the United States. So, you know, like I said, I have no problem voicing my opinions, and I agree, you know, uh, that, that it is a controversial subject. And so when you're looking at those controversial subjects, how do you kind of want to put your spin on it? Do you want to put your menta- – do you want to put your opinions out there, or do you want to try to make it to where it's the characters talking through – you know, how, how do you want to, you know, kind of handle those things? Well, in a way, I always approach this uh, kind of by default with a historian's mentality. Uh, one of the things I'm most proud of is at the end of my last semester teaching last year, uh, I was doing a class on uh, the, like the U.S. history up to through the Civil War. And mm-hmm. my students came up to me at the end of the semester and they said, Professor Burgess, uh, we have a bet which we'd like you to settle. Would you please oh. tell us if you are Republican or Democrat? Because the entire <laughs> class is evenly split. And I, 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 said, I did exactly what you just did. I started laughing, and I said, if you haven't figured it by now, there is no way in the world I'm going to tell you. <laughs> and I think that a bit of that impartiality actually would serve the story well, because it's, I will say that even if I agree, which I think, you know, I, I could tip my hat at least this much. I agree with you that, that um, for me, a statue is an avatar of meaning. It's created to convey a message. Uh, right. The story that, that I was most struck by, I was watching a, um, a documentary about what happened in the Belgian Congo back at the, of the turn of the 19th, 20th century, uh, where the king of the Belgians, Leopold II, had slaughtered hundreds of thousands of these Belgians, and yet there was an enormous equestrian statue of him 
in what used to be called Leopoldville. And that statue was there right up until the, I think, the late 1980s. So one of the historians uh, who was himself Congolese, he described how when you walked past the statue, if you were a person of color, you had to walk behind the statue. So you literally had to walk under the horse's ass and look oh up at it. You couldn't walk in front of, of Leopold because that was considered disrespectful. So that really struck me, as you can imagine. And I thought, well, that means that these statues are conveying a very powerful story, and that's, that exactly. narrative can change, right? Um, mm-hmm. So the other side of it, and the one that I wanted to explore as well, is uh, when, you, when you hear people defending the statue, um, especially in the Confederate context, what they're saying is, you know, my however many times great-grandfather gave his life for a cause that he believed to be right. Even if we believe it to be wrong, even if we know it to be wrong, he died, he sacrificed, he suffered for this. And that statue is not necessarily honoring the cause, it's honoring the memory of the man. And I thought, you know, that speaks to me a little bit too, because my family's been in Rhode Island since the 1640s. And they had a hand. I saw that. In, 350 yeah, years you've been in that same area. That's cool. Yeah, my dad always said it's because they were too dumb to leave. But um, <laughs> it, no, it. it <laughs> uh, so they had done some fairly questionable things uh, over, and some very, some very wonderful things too. But I thought, how would it? How would I feel if it were, if that statue were a relative, um, which it could easily have been, you know? And what kind of emotions would that raise in me? Uh, in fact, it, the closest I ever came to this was I did my graduate work at Brown University, and I'm related to the Browns. And John Brown himself, the man that, that founded Brown University, was, among other things, a slave trader. When I was in graduate school, the big story was that they had found through documentary evidence that all of the original buildings on campus had been built by slave labor. And there was some discussion of whether there should be reparations to the families of the slaves if they could ever find the descendants or should they create a scholarship or whatever. And then by some incredible mischance, someone realized that I was kind of like connected to the last of the Browns and they were trying to interview me for the school paper. And they said, what do you think about this? And I absolutely declined to be interviewed, quoted anything because I thought, you know, my opinion couldn't possibly be less relevant to this discussion. Um, but it still made me think, you know? Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, I'm a huge history buff too. And I always tell people that always rail on certain things. I'm like, well, read the history of how things were created before you just start railing it. And, and the one thing, you know, real quick that I always tell people now is, especially like this whole national anthem controversy, I always say, Mm -hmm. first of all, do you know the history of the anthem? People know who wrote it, which was just the words, where was it written? What war was it written in? You know, what mm-hmm. was the history of the song before it became our national anthem? Where did it go? And you'd be surprised, 90% of the people have no idea. They all say American Revolution, which is totally wrong. It's really? like that. That's not even, it's not, it's not where it's done. Oh, I mean, it was sad. Baltimore Harbor in the War of 1812. It's like, so no, if you're going to tell people to do certain things, you should at least know the history of the song and the relevance of it before you start railing on people's constitutional rights. That's just what oh, I Oh, I couldn't agree with that more. Uh, you know, this is something that I mean, really strikes me. Yeah, yeah. you can't and they be don't wrong study it enough. And I love, so. and you know, like you do colonial. So I, it's kind of interesting that you know you didn't it, that you know you're that you're not really. I mean, you're doing a historical of Foglin Point, 
but it's not mm-hmm. like a Roanoke or, you know what I mean, like something to the effect of like a history kind of, uh, like, like, you know, kind of like a big history, um, I guess, kind of subject that a lot of people know and kind of wrapping around that, but you decided to kind of do it this way, which, you know, was really kind of cool and, and, and nice and exploratory. Oh, it, it, thank you. It's, it's fun because you can tell a lot of the history through the stories. I mean, there's one uh, about uh, an actual pirate that's related to the family that sailed in Narragansett Bay back in the 1690s, and that's something that I know a great deal about uh, through my own research. So, and then there was another story. I mean, everybody knows about the Newport Mansions and the Vanderbilts and all the rest of it, but almost nobody knows that before the Vanderbilts, all of Newport, the mansions of Newport, were actually summer houses for wealthy antebellum southerners so i told a story about uh one of those families that gets trapped in in newport during the civil war and is trying to bring their daughter up for safekeeping and it it turns into one of these uh one of the kind of ghost legends that surrounds newport and it's actually based on some real events so uh, the historian in me was was very anxious to get some of those some of those stories out there and tie it back into the plot. And I thought the best way of doing that is to make it just like it was in my household, where we would be sitting around um, the coffee table and just swapping these old tales with each other. Very cool. Well, hey, Doug, we want to thank you so much for coming in and talking about the book uh, Fogland Point again out August the twenty first. Uh, you can find it on Amazon. You can pre order it now and the best place to go find more information is poisonedpenpress.com uh, and search for Fogland Point, and you should find it there. Or you can just search uh, out the book, Doug Burgess, Fogland Point, and it'll take you to different sites. Because I know uh, I've seen it reviewed on several different sites, uh, fan fiction, like you said, Kirkus, Booklist. So congratulations on the debut book, man. Um, wish you nothing but the best. Thanks so much for coming on and talking about it. Well, thank you so much for having me. This is a lot of fun. I appreciate it. All right. Hey, and you're not going to have more fun on a podcast than you are here. So, you know, you, sorry it's all about I believe you. that. <laughs> I believe it. <laughs> so, all right. Okay, Doug, thanks so much, man. Enjoy. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. So, again, everybody, that is author Doug Burgess, and the book is called Fogland Point. So make sure you uh, put that on your radar and go pick that up. We're going to take a short break, and we are waiting for our next guest, uh, Gray Bassnight, to call in and um, – talk about his latest book, uh, which is Flight of the Fox. So as soon as we can get um, Gray on, we will talk about that. In the meantime, we'll uh, let you listen to a little white snake. Here you go.
again, we want to thank Doug for coming in and talking to us, and we are very excited to be able to transition into our next guest. Uh, his name is author Gray Bass Knights, and the book is called Flight of the Fox. It is, it's his first book with a new publisher, um, and so we're very excited to talk to Gray. So, Gray, thanks so much for coming on. How are you doing? I'm great, John. Thanks so much for having me here on uh, Suspense Radio. It's a privilege. Flight of the oh, Fox. Well, thank is, you. Uh, is yeah, well. <laughs> gotcha. So, Flight of the Fox, <laughs> yeah. It's uh, Down and Out Books. Uh, it's uh, Down and Out Books is an up and coming uh, publisher, an indie publisher in the mystery genre. Um, they're very busy. I think they're up to publishing just about a book a week now. So, they've got a lot going on on their plate. My uh, novel uh, was just published last month. It's a political run-for-your-life suspense thriller, and um, it's getting great reviews online. Yeah, I mean, uh, true down-out books. I mean, I must get five or six emails from them a week talking about different books and different authors that they have coming out. So they're really hitting it, which is, uh, you know, I'm really excited. I love to see, you know, new um, new authors have a chance to – you know, not have to do the self-published route because it's becoming extremely different, more difficult, I think, for um, self-published authors to kind of get their foot in the door. So it's great, you know, for you to find down out books and them to kind of find you. But give us the uh, inside scoop here now into uh, your latest book, Flight of the Fox. What you got going on for readers? All right. This is, um, I'm really excited about it. And it may, in fact, end up being a series, but for now it's a standalone Flight of the Fox is uh, cut from the mold of the old Robert Ludlum series. I was a big fan of Robert Ludlum. Um, but it's different in that this is no Jason Bourne. My central character is a college mathematics professor. He doesn't have a black belt in karate. He doesn't carry a firearm. But uh, he's sitting on his porch in upstate New York one summer, with, uh, in the summer, in fact, just slightly in the future, in August of 2019, when suddenly a pack of drones tries to kill him. All right, well, he survives the drones, and he has to go on the run, and while he's on the run, he gradually figures out why this mysterious team of black ops hitmen are chasing him, and he realizes he has a mysterious file in his email inbox, and the file is encoded, and while on the run, he decodes it. He has some knowledge of in encryption and decryption, uh, having been a mathematics professor, and he learns that it's a diary, and every diary passage begins with the word, Dear John. And the John is John Edgar Hoover, the former director of the FBI, and the author of the diary is uh, John Edgar Hoover's, J. Edgar Hoover's uh, lifelong partner. And, uh, well, I guess I can say it because it's in the book. It's his lover, his lifelong lover and number two man in the FBI, a real guy. His name is Clyde Anderson Tolson. And so the diary reveals uh, certain things that happened in the FBI and in the United States of America during the 1930s, 40s, 50s, and 60s. But here it is, the year 2019, and the FBI doesn't want all of those dark secrets to be released to the public. So my central character, mathematics professor, his name is Sam Teagarden, he's running for his life, and he gradually figures out why, and he gradually decodes that diary. And now this is – so now right now this is a standalone book, but off the air you had mentioned that this could be something turning into – into a sequel. So when you were writing the book, did you have kind of that in mind or when your conception of it kind of came out and you started thinking about the characters and started thinking about the plot, did you think this was just going to be a one-off? 
I wasn't sure at first. I knew that I wanted to write a run-for-your-life thriller just to see if I could get a page-turner under my belt as an as a aspiring writer. This is my third novel, but as we spoke about, it's my first was Down and Out. And then as it evolved, yeah, I thought, wow, this can really be a pretty good series, um, which, of course, means the central character, no spoilers here, but the central character does have to survive. Um, just they always do survive in run-for-your-life situations where you know it's going to pick up again with the sequel. So I'm working on the sequel now. No word on how it's going to turn out, how long it's going to be, but I'm deeply immersed in that. Sam Teagarden is even farther into the future. Um, it's in the mid-2020s now, and he's working on an entirely different situation where um, this time he's actually working with, in the sequel, he's actually working with the FBI instead of running from the FBI. So things things can change over a period of time. But I'm having a lot of fun with it. Um, I'm learning how to write the a page turner, and judging from the reviews I'm getting from critics online and some newspaper uh, reviews as well, um, people are really enjoying it. And one critic even called it, um, let me see, what did he say, destined to become a cult classic. So when I read that boy from his lips to God's ears, that would be great. And when you're kind of writing elements about, you know, 30s, 40s, 50s uh, in the book, and of course it's, you know, that's an era that, many people that may be reading the book aren't really familiar with how much research and how much, you know, did you have to kind of go back and, and try to create that realism, uh, you know, when you're putting those elements in the book? Well, I did certainly try to my best to verify facts. So let me tell you, there's a secret now that every writer has at his or her disposal and it's called the internet. God bless the Internet when it comes to research because it's so quick and easy. But not everything is on the Internet. So you have to go to the library. Whoa, not er- I did what? Read a <laughs> Say what now? Not everything's on the Internet. <laughs> no. You, you oh, have to go it. to the libraries. So I, I did read a couple of biographies of J. Edgar Hoover, and I read a history of the FBI just so I know that stuff. But then as regards the fiction – and the stuff that happened in the 1930s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, um, you can confirm dates and events and uh, get, get that stuff from the Internet, which I basically did, just to try to keep it right. Uh, and then, because I lived through the 60s, that decade was my formative uh, decade, and we, of course, lost two Kennedys and Dr. King, and there was a little something called Vietnam that got cranked up in the 60s. And and all of that is vivid memory for me because I'm just barely old enough to have been in the lottery where if I had had a low lottery number, I would have been drafted and sent to Vietnam. But I didn't go. I had a high lottery number. And um, because that was such an emotional decade, an emotional time in my life, I remember that stuff. And it was a lot of fun writing about it um, as regards my professor who was not alive at the time because he's now – a much younger man in the year 2019, but he's learning it himself as he, as he runs, as he goes. Yeah. And when you're sitting there and, and you're trying to, you know, uh, you know, w- w- when you're putting the book together and you kind of reach the end of it, was there a certain thing that you wanted to make sure that you got across to readers? And did you do that? Was there maybe some dialogue, some scene settings, some stuff that you really tried to work on that, that, that you really wanted to convey, you know, to readers? Always. That's always in there. 
I, if I if I have a real flaw here, it's it's that I want my I want my characters to be likable. I want the readers to like these men and women, even the bad guys. Uh, and, and this is being reflected in some of the uh, reviews. Even the antagonists have the reader has some insight into what's going on with them. So they're not just two-dimensional men who are trying to kill my central character, Sam Teagarden. Um, there are political motivations here. There's background information about what these people have suffered in their lives. And that's all in an effort to try to make it real for the readers. And at the same time, want the, having the readers hope for and want more so that if I'm lucky enough to get a sequel out there, they'll return for the... Uh, the comeback of Sam Teagarden and his next adventure as a as sort of an everyman who's plunged into uh, surreal events um, where he has to defend himself, but the only weapons he has are his intelligence and his will to survive. Uh, unlike, I think, say, for example, Jason Bourne, who, uh, again, I love Robert Ludlum, but I like the idea of giving readers an alternative to all of that karate chopping and, uh, and marksmanship. I think uh, sometimes readers really enjoy the notion of an everyman who doesn't have all of those skills to, um, uh, you know, chop their way and shoot their way out of a mess. And this man, Sam Teagarden, um, uses psychology. He uses uh, his skills in mathematics. He uses his skills in encoding and decoding. And he's a smart guy, and um, we're all kind of, I think, secretly aspire to be like that. So I was hoping to make a, an everyman character that uh, people could identify with. And Jason Bourne, on the other hand, you know, he's a Superman. Jason Bourne is a Superman. He is. And when you're reading him, you admire him. He's kind of a Batman without really... a cow. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You don't really aspire to be like him. I, I loved uh, Batman and Superman comic books when I was 12 years old. But I didn't aspire. I didn't think I was going to grow up to be Batman. But on right. the other hand, when I read Robert Ludlum, those guys, uh, I don't know. And, and, and today I read a lot of Dennis Lehane, and, and I love uh, um, Great, uh, James, Lee Burke, James Lee Burke. I love the old Don Westlake. These, these are guys, some of them just trip over themselves, and they don't know what they're doing when they're trying to rob a bank or whatever it is the plot is about. And it's humor. It's got some humor in it. And I love that sort of a character. Yeah. I mean, and, and the one thing that, you know, of course, when you're writing a thriller and you're writing a mystery, uh, especially a thriller, is the pace. Um, is that something that, you know, that, that kind of comes natural to you? Or is that something that you really got to work on? Is your pacing? Um, how, how, does, how does that aspect of your writing, you know, work? Pacing is everything. And in a thriller, it's more than everything. Plotting and pacing is the most difficult thing, I think, for a writer, and it has been for me. I knew going into my effort to write novels that I had fundamental writing skill. I also knew that I had really good ideas. But this does not make you a published novelist. Uh, a published novelist uh, has to also have plotting and pacing skills, and these are things that you learn just by sitting at the keyboard in trial and error. And one of the keys with a, a thriller is whatever it is you write, just get, take a run at it. Get it done. Get your 70 to 100,000 words out there and then go back and cut it down uh, by more than 10%, in some cases by 25%, to get the pacing set so that it actually is a page turner. 
Um, and that's not easy because once you write those words, they're all your babies. And every writer will tell you, and I think it was Stephen King in his book on writing that said, look, the only way you're ever going to become a writer is to learn how to kill your babies. And uh, that's what you have to do. You, need, you just need to red ink all that stuff and get it out of there in order to facilitate pacing and pick up on the page turning. Um, readers want it, and, and they don't. They don't want to be distracted by things that really don't advance the plot. Right, and I think that that's a big thing. Is you you see a, a lot of young authors. The one thing that I notice that they always have problems with is they want to throw so much detail into stuff. And I'm like, look, if the color of uh, you know if the color of this doesn't make that big of a deal, then just mention it, but don't mention it, you know, in four paragraphs. Um, it's like, you know, those are the things that kind of kill me. And, and you start flipping past descriptionary things that really don't have, like you said, a, they really don't have a need to be in the book more than just setting the scene. And it's almost like they don't know how to set a scene, so they use way too many words in, in doing it uh, instead of just getting into the meat of the subject. And, you know, so – like you said, this is your third fiction book, and you've probably learned a lot just from book one now into Flight of the Fox, but you probably learned more about yourself from writing this one as, as you kind of move forward. So when you're looking forward into your writing and if this is going to kind of be a sequel, do you already kind of have an idea of how you want to kind of advance yourself as an author with your next book? Yes. Uh, or at least I hope to. Um, nothing is written in stone and nothing is guaranteed. But yes, I, I want to advance as a writer and I want my readers to appreciate the fact that I'm taking them with me and taking me with them. Um, but you're right. Um, you do have to, to learn to cut that stuff out in order to bring your readers along with you. Weather, of course, is one of the big things that you're probably skipping. Um, novice writers will spend way too much on that and when you're scene setting, um, sometimes you can set a scene with just one perfect word in a well-written sentence. I think it was Mark Twain who said, the difference between the right word and the almost right word is like the difference between the lightning bug and lightning. <laughs> and it's true. If, if, if you can just find the right word, you don't need four paragraphs to set the scene. You just need one sentence and you get into it. Um, I think readers appreciate that, and as I'm trying to grow as a writer, um, it's vitally important to figure that part out, and, uh, and, and you need to do that to establish a name for yourself, I'm sure. Um, publishers and agents and editors are aware that uh, to build a platform, uh, first of all, you need the books, and then you need the readers, and then the readers will stay with you, and that's what editors and publishers are interested in if you have a platform where readers will follow you from book to book. Yeah, uh, definitely. I mean, it's it always you know. Do you do you do a lot of um, uh, the one thing? I mean, do you do a lot of conferences? Do you go to a lot of conferences? I'm doing it more and more. I belong to a number of groups, and I love going to Q and As. I love just listening to agents and editors and other writers talk about what they do. It's vitally important, and I'm ever expanding my. Uh, my uh, friendships with people both on social media and also in person and going to lunches and exchanging each other's uh, manuscripts in progress, works in progress, to try to give each other a little bit of feedback. I love having beta readers. Um, the alpha reader, of course, is myself and my spouse, 
But if you have a backup group of beta readers who understand that you're not looking for compliments, you're not looking to be told, oh, that's so good, I really enjoyed it. You, you need to be told, look, uh, uh, chapter number three is your opening. Kill chapter one and two, boil it down to two sentences, and then move on to the part where the guy is getting into the taxi cab and so on and so forth. That's what a beta reader does for you. And after you let that stuff sink in and then let it cook for a few days or even a few weeks, you get back to the manuscript and you understand what your friends were talking about. Um, that stuff is important, and you can get that sort of thing in um, Q&A conferences and sessions and even conferences, well, especially conferences. I will be going to VoucherCon in September, which is in St. Pete, Florida this year. Um, it's, it's coming up in the middle of September, sponsored by Mystery Writers of America. And that's the big one. And there are lots of uh, conferences and classes there where you're listening to other writers talk and you can ask questions. And it's just valueless to do this sort of thing. Of course, it, it it does require a little bit of money if you, because there are transportation costs and so forth. But even so, there's a lot going on online that doesn't cost so much. And uh, for example, Suspense Radio, listen, listening into Suspense yeah. Radio uh, through through Suspense Magazine, and and so much else uh, that's happening through Mystery Writers. Um, various bookstores are constantly sponsoring events. Um, libraries uh, love having writers come in, and I'm going to be doing a well, a half a dozen of those in my immediate area in the coming weeks to just sort of sit down and talk with um, aspiring writers and even established writers. It's a lot of fun, John. Yeah, it is. Uh, and the reason I was kind of asking because, you know, everything is so instantaneous now. You can meet fan instantaneous and, you know, you can meet your authors and you can get, you know, great tips. Um, you know, do you ever allow the reviews and the and what you see I guess you want to say, you know, like the instantaneous stuff that you see people saying, does that influence your writing or do you even read your reviews, uh, you know, on Amazon and, and things of those natures? I do read them. Uh, um, and I know no matter who you are, you're going to get sort of snarkiness and those can bother me. And I think they bother, I don't think anyone uh, can read those things without being bothered when you get a really snarky review. I remember my first book had a had a review that I forget what it said, but anyway, it, it just went on and on with how terrible it was, even though everybody else was giving it five stars. But you just you just can't let that bother you. And if the reviews have something constructive to say beyond just a really good book or I didn't enjoy this book or whatever, you always take those, or at least I always try to take those constructive criticisms um, and sort of incorporate them into the back burner and let those cook and maybe apply them somehow to the next manuscript. Um, the more thoughtful critics, the formal critics that read the entire novel and write reviews both online and uh, in published uh, hard copy newspapers, I read those. Um, and they're kind of important because even though, even in the age of the Internet, um, to sell books, the old school line of media is still vitally important. Your local newspaper, um, magazines, and, and other forms of radio uh, broadcast where, where, where there's an arts and a review critic type coming on uh, once or twice a week to give reviews of whatever play production they've seen or whatever books they've been reading. And, and, and that stuff helps, and it's vitally important. 
when they start making comments about this character was likable and, and why they were likable. And I do incorporate that into my way of thinking and my way of writing as it comes along, yeah. Yeah, and I think that some people do. And, I, and I, the one thing that I think that people do that they shouldn't do is they read kind of those reviews and whatnot, and they almost try to change their trend or follow, try to, you know, try to chase a trend or this and that. And I'm like, oh, you know, just write the best book you can, but don't be, don't be a trend chaser. Uh, and I think that you see a lot of people doing that with, you know, like I said, like the instantaneous of being able to see everything right away. Great advice. Just write the best yeah. book you can. Um, absolutely. And I think one of my talents is that I tend not to follow, uh, for lack of a better word, the formula. Um, I, do, I sort of right. do what comes natural. Um, for example, here's a perfect case. In the first 10 pages of Flight of the Fox, you know, there's an unwritten rule, John, never kill a dog because it's no. such a cringe factor. But I have a confession to make. <laughs> In oh, the first shit. 10 pages of Flight of the Fox, Sam Teagarden's dog dies. Now, he was due to go to the vet anyway. He, he was 15 years old. He was an overweight lab, riddled with arthritis, but the dog um, saves his master's life. And, and, and in return for that, um, Sam T. Garden survives and survives to live another day and fight the good fight with these black up FBI hitmen. I'm so, surprised you so, didn't take a lot of shit for that one. <laughs> well, it, I, got, I got a few thanks but no thanks from agents because of it. But ultimately, yep. it's a violation of the formula. And if you, you know, no rule cannot go broken, unbroken if it needs to be broken. And so I knew I was breaking that rule, and I did it. And, and it works. And I haven't had a single complaint since the book was published. Because I think readers oh, read into it. They get it. They understand that uh, it's necessary for the forward momentum of the plot. Yeah, you know, I mean, as long as you do it, I guess, you know, I mean, you never really want to get into the children aspect either. But I guess as long as you do it in a way that makes sense and it's not just, um, you know, I mean, you see like these horror movies and you see and it's like, well, you know, what was the point of killing that person? There was no point. I mean, it had nothing to do with the story. I think I think that's where, I mean, I'm a huge slasher movie fan and I think that's where they kind of lost a lot of people because Halloween had a point, uh, which is one of my favorite horror movies of all time. It had a point. He didn't do a lot of senseless killing in that movie. It was, it, there was not like when you see the slash movies coming out now. So, you know, you can do those things as long as it's like, okay, you know what, it, it made sense. And it wasn't anything, and it was done in a humane way. That's the other thing. It has to be done in a humane way. Yes, um, you, under, you understand in Halloween, for example, there's a psychological motivation going on in the mind of the killer, and the viewers understand that. They get it, and so they can go along with that. And, and it's the same with uh, mystery novels and thrillers. Yeah, the reader has to have some appreciation for the suffering of the antagonist uh, in, in terms of why he or she does what he or she does. And the right. same thing with, uh, in, in my case, um, Sam T. Garden's lab, who saved his life in the first 10 pages, yeah. Right. Well, I'll tell you what, Gray, we want to thank you so much for coming on and talking about your latest book here, Flight of the Fox, uh, available now. You can go to Gray Bass Knight, Bass Knight, 
B-A-S-N-I-G-H-T.com for more information on all your works and, of course, this book. Um, and what is that the best place for people to find you, right? You on Twitter and all the other social media? I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook, social media. Go to graybassnight.com. Click on contact and, and let me hear from you. Uh, the book is available through all of the traditional um, yep, internet now. sites. And uh, and also you can order it through the Amazon and through Publisher and through Barnes & Noble for a hard copy. Yeah. Well, hey, man, thanks so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure. Congratulations on the new Down & Out uh, publisher. Great way to see what you got coming up in the future, and it looks like we're going to have a sequel to this. So um, keep working it. Thank you, and thank you for the interview. John Robb, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. I, hey, I really thanks appreciate so much, it. man. Appreciate it. Okay. You too. All right. Bye bye. So again, everybody, that is Gray Bass Night, and you can go to graybassnight.com. The book is Flight of the Fox. It's out now. Get it wherever you buy books. We are going to take another really short break, and we are going to be. Did I say Blake? I think I did. Break, and we are going to be back with our last guest of the show, none other than Linda Laplante, and talking about her latest book, Murder Mile, coming out on my birthday. So this is extremely exciting to talk about this. So, here you go. Give you a little bit of this. We'll be right back. everybody here after the break again we want to thank you all for joining us it's been an outstanding show and we are so pleased to be able to speak with author linda laplante um if you're not familiar with her she is from the uk uh, massively successful over there uh, she has a show prime suspect that uh, helen mirren was in and her latest book which is the fourth in her series her jane tennyson series 
is called Murder Mile. Comes out August 23rd, my birthday. I'll turn 48, so this has got some nice significance for me. So we want to welcome Linda to the show. So Linda, I want to thank you so much for coming on and joining us. How are you doing? My pleasure to be here. Thank you. So, like I said, this is your fourth book now, and of course, your Jane Tennyson series. It is called Murder Mile. Um, can you give us a little bit about what you got going on in this? Yeah, well, um, I was doing um, a big book signing in England, and one of one of the people in the audience asked a question, and they said to me, where did Jane Tennyson of Prime Suspect come from? And, you know, it was very strange, because although I'd really created her by being tied to a real detective chief inspector, I actually didn't know where her young character came from. And so it sort of set me on a journey to go back to find out how did this detective chief inspector become such a tough-nosed woman, you know, who handled discrimination, who kicked her way into handling a very big murder inquiry, which kicked off the series Prime Suspect. And so I went back and um, made her 22 years of age and coming out of training school. And to do that, I had to really interview um, old police officers that had been around at the time. And the more I uncovered it, it was so fascinating because I went back to the 1970s. So I'm doing 1970s, 80s, no DNA, no mobile phones. And the discrimination was at such a level that there were very, very few female detectives so as soon as I'd hit that kind of level, um, I became very, very excited because it was so interesting to see how the women grew within the Metropolitan Police Force. And um, some of the old, old guys I met were quite <laughs> extraordinary. <laughs> you know, their stories. And yeah. a few of the women were interesting. You know, they used to say, oh, you know, we never even had toilets when we went to the stations. <laughs> and what they were put through as female officers was so extraordinary. They, it was a bit like kids at school. You know, they would put fingerprint ink on the only toilet allocated to the women, knowing that when they sat on it, they had a black rim round their bum. And it oh was that, that kind of lunacy that went on. But it's fascinating for me to see the character of Jane Tennyson growing bit by bit by bit. How did she get to the point when at 45 she came onto the screen with such huge acclaim? And so it's been fascinating to tease out a character. And, you know, three books on, I'm now into... Murder Mile, where she's been made a detective sergeant. And um, the discrimination is outrageous. I mean, they're, they're appalling. And um, it's in, set in an area in London called Peckham, which is now quite posh. Um, you know, the properties have gone up, but in the days when I've set it, it really was a very, very tough... I mean, one of the officers was saying they were churning up bodies every night. Um, 
And I've also set it in a period in England when there was a strike. You know, the garbage wasn't collected. It was like rats running everywhere. And so, so it's set in quite darkness. But to me, the fascination is how fast we look at all the crime shows now that are on TV and in every novel. You know, uh, you've got CCTV cameras. You've got forensic Everything yeah. gets to the point of catching the killer very quickly. You know, they have, you know, there's that wonderful line they always say in all the crime shows, we have a witness, and there's yep. a CTV. Well, they didn't have that. They also didn't have, you know, an, an interrogation. They didn't have cameras. Then they didn't have a tape recorder um, to really protect the one that they were interviewing, you know, and there was the time when they could knock them around a bit. I mean, that is completely yeah. off the record now. Everything yeah. is recorded. And in Murder Mile, I mean, you get bodies that have the beginning of it. You don't know if they're connected because the different right. ages. Um, I mean, you actually horrendous... have to do police work. Yeah, you have to do yeah. police work. Yeah, look. You know, who knew? I mean, like you mentioned, those shows like the CSI and the forensics, there's always that computer geek in the background that is oh, sitting there yeah. and hits a couple buttons and is like, oh, I got the DNA and I got blah, blah, blah. And when I, yeah. I was just watching a show, uh, it's, it's a movie called Thief with James Conn set in 1981. And what yeah. I found funny, I started watching that. He's sitting there cracking a safe and he just gets done and he smokes a cigarette and he puts it on the yeah. ground. And I'm like... Today's day and age, that cigarette would be picked up, found with DNA, probably found yeah. who he was. But back then, it was just like just flick it on the ground and move on. They, they didn't, you know, it was just hilarious. But the to imagine actually the amount of time it took to match a fingerprint. Yes. You know, they had somebody with an eye. It's not a commercial break. Match here, yeah. <laughs> it took hours. There was no big, you know, computerized thing of. You know, no. records of people. There was nothing. And I think it was by hand. They had to do it all by hand and by sight and magnifying glasses. Hand, sight, but also in absolute detective work. But what yeah. fascinates me is the growing of the forensic. The, you know, and I'm very proud because I was made a fellow of the Forensic Society. And apparently I'm the only lay person. Because <laughs> throughout my career... You know, if something didn't smell right, feel right, I always went to source. So if a forensic, and if you see a program now where they go, oh, we've just got the toxicology report in, and yeah. you think, well, hang on a second. It couldn't come in in 10 minutes. You know, toxicology <laughs> report, a drug, you know, drugs in a body could take two to three weeks. And if there's a backlog, you've got five oh, yeah. weeks. But as a novelist, that becomes very interesting when you're writing in that period because you've got to fill the time. You know, what do right. they do? And so most of the crime shows are moving at such a pace because of the new technology where, for me, I have really enjoyed going back. And, you know, the old guys that I meet, they, they give you Stories. It's like even a couple of the the women. I mean, I don't know if you remember or have heard of the the infamous Cray brother twins that 
dominated the East End in London. They were a nightmare. You know, I've heard the name, but I don't know the actual research and stuff behind it. Well, they 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 ran the East End of London. They were a nightmare, you know. And people were so afraid of them that one of them could go into a pub, pick up a guy, knock him on the ground, hammer his hands to the floor, shoot him. And then when the police went round, no, no, nobody saw nothing. No. No. Up at the other end of the bar. No, no, nobody saw. So, you know, they ran what they call their manners by fear. And people were terrified of them. They were very, very gangs. And then we, I mean, now we're we're very used to the word gang. You know, we've got kids gangs, we've got street yeah. gangs. But London was dominated by very violent gangsters that carved up the territory. And that is another area that no longer exists. But because I'm going back in time, I'm mm-hmm. having the joy of talking to these old coppers, you know, they go, oh, yeah, well, we had them in the back of the van. And it's like when they're describing shooters. And then they were describing to me that a lot of the um, shootings that happened is that the old criminals, the old villains, used to pack like it was like they'd go Greek restaurants, you know, the leaves in the restaurants packed with rice. Mm -hmm. They'd use those in their shotguns hard rice, and they'd fire them so that if that came out of a shotgun and hit you, it hit you hard, and it splattered, and you really thought you'd been hit. But that protected the gangster when he was arrested because he could then say, no, Your Honor, I never intended to kill. I shot rice. Ah, And so that used to, you know, used to lower the sentence. If they'd shot bullets from their shotguns, but, um, you know, the, the, the whole world was different then. And this is what I love about, you know, in Murder Mile, how these bodies turn up. And, you yeah. know, it's the pace. I like to actually see the pace. Because I think a reader is getting very used to the fast pace of a novel. Yeah, they do. And so you can't necessarily, in a novel now, have one main thrust of a crime. They've got to throw in four or five, because otherwise, you know, they get to the killer very quickly. He's either right. on record, got his fingerprints, got his blood, got his DNA. And this you have way, to, like, layer the criminal. It's like you get yes. the first little guy who gets you to the middle guy, and then you yes. finally get to the big guy. Yeah. Yes, exactly, exactly. Yes. And it's the hunt, and it's just the observation, you know, how to observe somebody much more. How You could have a suspect. and But now, you know, a suspect comes up on screen. He's caught on CCTV. This way, they had nothing. They had to go on gut thought. When somebody is interviewed, something mm-hmm. in them didn't quite ring true, um, and piece it together. And that's what I like. And with... The character growing, and I'm very proud that you know the readers and the fans are so in love with this character, um, and I get some extraordinary fan mail. Um, is she going to get married? Well, I, mean, <laughs> I don't know about that. I don't know. I don't know. She might. 
She might at some point, but do you know what I mean? It's the joy of um, allowing readers to get to really know character. I love it. No, and you know, and the one thing that is, like you said, you set this in 1979. So right off the bat, you have a woman as a detective sergeant back in 1979, something that's very, very, that probably wasn't, you know, seen a lot, not even the United States. You're not going to have a lot of women police on 1979 in the United States either. So that was a challenge for Jane mentally to have to try to get over. So when you're writing that and you're in, in, in that kind of setting, you know, how yeah. difficult is it for you to kind of make sure that her mental aspect and everything is, is what people will understand what it was like back then for a woman and now into this kind of a, into this role? Because you see her adapting to discrimination. And for me, to be able to go back and meet really 50, 60-year-old policewomen that were there and the stories they tell me, um, uh, I, can, I can slide them in because it's the original Jane Tennyson character she was based on. When she became quite high-ranking and there was what they call a shout, you know, shout, got a murder, and there's the run from the station... Even her rank be higher than the men. They didn't like her getting into the front passenger seat, and twice they shot her. I mean, they literally clipped her hand in the door to make sure she got in the back seat. They hated the fact that a woman was in the front seat with the fast driver. And it's, it's, it's still discrimination is there, but it's, it's kind of covert but it's there. And right now in England, we have a female commander, you know, mm-hmm. the head of the police. And it's like you then get the insult and they go, oh, well, you know, women are very clever at um, diversifying everything. You know, they can do three jobs at once. There's always that snide little kick at the back. But um, I think I, I was so proud when um, Helen Mirren came onto the screen as Jane Tennyson <coughs> and showed that, that strength. But it was very, very interesting picking up from the old cop, the female, the, the stuff she would say to me. She would say, don't let her lift her voice high. Never let her fold her arms. Don't touch the men. So I said, well, what do you mean don't touch them? You know, just casually lean on them, wrap your arms around. Don't do that. You don't touch them. And I said, well, why? She said, well, because they think they can screw you. Um, (laughs) So the physicality has always got to be restrained. And and that is still the case. Um, (coughs) And in um, to be the only female in a station full of men, of various ages and careers is tough going and you have to be, I think, a specific kind of woman to be able to deal with it and to create one, and and I've created her. Now when you see her, even as a young woman, uh, facing discrimination and getting over it, I'm not hammering feminism in any way. I'm hammering Watch her take her career by her fists mm-hmm. and say, no, that doesn't work for me. 
You know, so many just sit back, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You can actually see her appall. But also, I enjoy watching her make mistakes. And she makes mistakes, big ones. For example, for example, um, you know, sometimes an editor will query something that I've written and say, would they really let a young female interview this psychopath? So I said, yeah, they would. They don't really care because they've got enough evidence to take him to trial. They just want a statement. You know, yeah. they've got everything else in it. Take a statement. That's what she's, you know, supposed to be doing. Yeah. But she can't hide her absolute disgust at this creature. And she lets rip. But what she does is she says things that cannot be and should not be repeated to him because in court they're hearsay. True. And she makes right. a big mistake. You know, the, and so the law, to learn the law, the way I've had to learn it bit by bit by bit, and to constantly go to the source that says, no, <coughs> can't do that, Linda. No, 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 no. Mm-hmm. And I think I get the help from the officers and from forensic, from pathologists, because their fingerprints are all over my book. And they'll ring up and go, no, we can't do that. Right. No, no, no. The body will not be on the tray at that time. Remove it. <laughs> so I go, thank you. Right. And so I, I'm, I obey them. You know, I listen to what they tell me. I mean, with, with so many books that you have written now, and again, this is the fourth in, in the Jane Tennyson in, um, series that you have, what yeah keeps exciting you to come back to the typewriter to keep creating is it the characters is it the plots you still want to keep exploring um what is it that just keeps driving you back to want to you know keep doing this well you know i'd I'd love to be incredibly honest with you and say well of course it's because i love the writing and i love the characters but you know um getting a commission <laughs> is your kicker. I got you know, there's an awful lot of good writers that don't get commissioned. And yeah. to be consistently commissioned and encouraged is the booster that does it. And then okay. you actually have to, you know, admit that you quite like the money. <laughs> um, you know, because people say, oh, no, no, I don't do it for the money. Of course you do. Yeah. But um, I also am very fortunate to have uh, a publisher who's behind me. And, you know, you never know when things are going to happen <coughs> that are terribly exciting. I mean, Steve McQueen's new movie, Widows, right, is based on my TV series, Widows. And... I mean, it's a huge Hollywood movie full of stars. And I was just approached by Steve McQueen at, believe it or not, this function at Buckingham Palace. And up he came to me and he said, are you Linda LaPlante? And I said, yes. 
He said, Uh-oh. my name is Steve McQueen. And I have been obsessed by your show, Widows, since I was a teenager. And I want to make it into a movie. Well, you're not likely to go, oh, no, no, thank you. I mean, I was <laughs> bowled over. It was incredible. Yeah. And my God, wait till you see it. Oh. Yeah, I, I was going to touch on that just, you know, just in a couple of seconds, but I'm glad you brought it up because I'm very excited to see how how this comes out. I, I tell you, it's, it's very political. Okay. It's very violent. But the key are the women. They're there. They're right there in the center of that film. And Viola Davis is giving an incredible performance. Oh, she, could, um, she, could, she could act the phone book and I would watch it. Yeah, she can let rip. And yes. man, but it's very, very exciting. And for me, I've found it um, very touching that Steve McQueen has been so um, respectful to me in the fact that he wanted to get those women right. And, oh, good. Um, you know, and we've worked together quite closely. Um, and I'm very proud of it. Um, just it, and you know, and those are the shows thing. and movies that typically do the best is when the producers and the actors get with the author who created the characters to make sure that things are right. Those are the ones who typically turn out the best. Yeah, and it's like he, he, he his um, you know, his experience and his filmmaking is such. Yeah. But he he kept on saying, where did you get this character from? Where did she come from? And throughout my entire career, which I, I encourage every young writer, I say, when you don't know something, go to source. And, I mean, it sounds, you go, oh, right, go to source. What do you mean? Well, for example, go to a prostitute. You want to write a prostitute? Go and talk to one. You know, mm-hmm. it, they're, they're so often characterized as, hello, you know, okay, how are you, honey? But it's deeper than that. There's something else. You get another look in the eye. You get something from them that is that is different and you want to put on the page or on the screen. And I've found that with police at every single aspect. If I've wanted something, I've gone straight to the police and they mm-hmm. have been unbelievably helpful. And pathology, I mean, what? <laughs> The first time, the first time they said, have you been to an autopsy? I said, oh, yes, yes, you know. Thinking, well, I've seen enough on TV, I'll be all right. <laughs> and, uh, well, honestly, I got to the, the, the pathologist, because uh, I'm quite tiny. Mm-hmm. And they got me in these huge white Wellington boots, you know, white <laughs> boots. And then I had this hat on and a mask. And he said, who's the short one? And somebody said, um, uh, oh, sir, she's, uh, she's, uh, she's uh, researching. He said, well, let her come to the front because she won't be able to see anything. And so I kind of <laughs> plodded to the front round this enormous body on this enormous table. And he goes, right, oh. let's begin. Well, I mean, I, can't, I had no idea of the sounds, yeah. the sounds of an autopsy. I mean, I don't know if your listeners can, can go with it, but 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah, those are the those are the you know like the third dimensional things that you're writing more than just what you can see, but what you yeah. can hear, what you can smell, what you can taste. You're using all those oh. senses to put it into the book, and that's what oh, makes yeah. a great author from an average author. Yeah, but yeah. I mean, they, I unfortunately. When, I mean, it often happens. Apparently, when you make the incisions in a cadaver, they do move. <laughs> this one sat up. <laughs> oh, that's the other I, I did went not know. Out cold. I mean, I and also crashed into the instrument tray. I was carried out of the first autopsy. Oh. I've never seen anything like it. And now, now I'm a bit better. Now I'm used to it. Yeah. Um, and. Uh, you know, there's another thing that is wrong over and over again, and I read it over and over again. You know Vic that you put up your nose when you've got a cold? Yeah, like the Vic's Vapor Rub, yeah. Yes, a Vic. Yeah, that menthol stuff, yeah. If you, you read in a number of books how many times somebody they will use tell that. someone going in, oh, put some menthol rub under your nose. The reality is, that is used by the old cops when they've got a young trainee because it opens the airways and the smell's even stronger. <laughs> and yet still you see it in book after book of them yeah. putting it up their nose. And, you know, yeah. it's little things like that. And once they start to kind of open up to you and yeah. say things, the you know, the jokes. And the, and the other thing that has never ceased to amaze me is the emotion. The emotions, um, absolutely. Yeah. That uh, emotion about uh, childhood. Just like having to tell a family member that somebody passed away or was murdered or something. I mean, that's something that's very hard to recreate unless you've lived it. Mm. I think, to me, uh, I my most of my uh, crime novels are in the crime, the getting the killer. Yeah. I don't want to um, glorify them. I want them right. caught. I want them put away. Right. That's what I want because the aftermath of murder and the pain left is such that, and therefore I don't really like ever to write of child murder because when I've interviewed um, parents uh, and police officers, they always say there's one that stays in your mind. And I've seen tough officers turn away and cry. Um, yeah, that's that's tough. Because it's that poignant. They'll never yeah. forget it. And then the description, I remember one, of holding a child, holding the body. And then he said the worst part is you then have to go and tell a parent. But yeah. you see, nowadays, which wasn't in the 70s and 80s when I'm writing, you have um, you have people trained to be with the families. Um, to sit counselors, with them. yeah, yeah, they have counselors. There wasn't none of that, you know, in no. those days. Um, 
and and that is again another development that is so good. Yeah. Well, Linda, I'll tell you what, I could go on for hours and hours talking with you. Uh-huh. This has been such a pleasure. I want to thank you so much for joining us and talking not just about your latest book here, Murder Mile, but just you know, the writing process and everything in general, it has been an absolute pleasure to speak with you. Again, the book, Murder Mile, is out August 23rd. LindaLaplante.com is the website to find out everything about you. And thank you know you. what? You have such a wonderful time, and it's, thank you so much. Thank you very much for inviting me. Thank and you. I'm going to be looking for Widows with Steve McQueen because I can't wait to see that. And congratulations yeah. on everything. And, again, um, enjoy and can't wait to see what's out next. Great. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye. So again, everybody, that is author Linda LaPlante, and the book is called Murder Mile, out August 23rd. Make sure you go and grab it, book four in her Jane Tennyson series. LindaLaPlante.com is the website. Uh, we want to also thank Gray Bass Knight and Flight of the Fox and, of course, Doug Burgess with Fogland Point. So until next time, everybody, thank you so much for joining us. Keep reading. See you again. Bye-bye.